morning, everybody. Uh, happy Super Bowl Sunday to you, and uh, <laughs> hope you are excited about the big game tonight. Uh, something great's going to happen, right, one way or another. Uh, it's either going to be uh, Brady getting number six, which would be, <laughs> regardless of what you think about the Patriots and him, that's impressive indeed, right? So either uh, he gets number six, and I've heard the discussion about who's the greatest GOAT. You know what I mean? Either he or Michael Jordan, they will both be contending for that six championship, or it'll be the Eagles coming back as the underdogs. And my heart is there. So, listen, <laughs> if, if uh, either way, something's going to be great, and hope you have good plans tonight uh, for uh, the Super Bowl. I want to say uh, I'm going to have a new designation for every one of you uh, in Chicago. Uh, I know that many of you uh, often wear and purchase AWG all-weather gear, but I'm going to call you AWC all-weather Christians. This is just <laughs> this is just impressive, man. You know, in the snow and the you know uh, in the you know difficulty of the weather and everything, you're here worshiping God. And so again, we commend you for that. And uh, we just want to jump right into the Word today. So if I don't know you yet, my name is Roland. I'm the uh, lead pastor here, and uh, let's get into the Word of God today. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your goodness towards us. We thank you um, for your Word. Um, God, we thank you that it's a constant source of encouragement and lifting to us, lifting our eyes to the hills from which our help comes from, the Lord God Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. And so we honor you, Father, today. We honor you, Jesus, the Son. We honor you, Holy Spirit, and ask you to speak in your mighty name. Amen. Okay, so um, one other uh, mention, um, both the doctors, plural, Fiedler, um, have also um, pointed out that, again, during this weather, please make sure to take your vitamin D supplements. Um, it will, no, I'm being serious, it will help you, isn't that right? It will help you, so uh, please do take that, and that's um, all the medical advice I'll give today. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> um, what we're doing is we're finishing our series um, called uh, <clears throat> A New Hope, and today what we're going to do is we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and uh, how Jesus was speaking about uh, being himself uh, the answer and the solution to all that we hope for. And um, today we're going to pick up in John chapter 5, starting in verse 19. If you have a Bible, if you don't today, you can look on the screen. Um, but what we're going to talk about today, the theme for today's message is remaining in the vine. Remaining in the vine. And uh, for any of you who've ever uh, read the Bible or read uh, even the gospel, many of you have started your Christian faith reading the gospel of John. And uh, in John 15, it talks specifically about uh, Jesus uh, being the vine and we as his people being the branches. And that if we want to bear any type of fruit, that we must remain in him. That we can do nothing on our own, but that all things that are good come from him and being connected to him. Um, but today we're going to uh, continue that same theme by uh, backtracking where we left off last week. And uh, today we're going to talk about um, three distinct things. And um, just so you know, we're going to cover it in a way that works backwards because we know that the Bible is one continuous unanimous text where it's basically interconnected through the generations, it's interconnected through the prophets, it's interconnected through the writings, and they're all telling one redemptive story about Jesus the Son. And what we're going to do today is we're going to start by talking about what Jesus said um, about himself in relationship to the Father. Then we're going to um, actually talk about the hope of the gospel that even Ezekiel, um, uh, who was one of the Old Testament prophets, uh, foreshadowed in the scripture, foreshadowing the gospel uh, in his writings. And then finally, we'll look at the life of a man named Mephibosheth. The man named Mephibosheth, uh, who you might not be familiar with, but uh, he was the son of one of, uh, uh, well, he was actually the grandson of the first king 
of Israel who was named King Saul, um, but he actually had a special place because of the gospel of grace um, in the kingdom, and we'll see how that applies to us today. So let's start in John chapter 5. Remaining in the vine is where we're going to begin. It says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. It's a great place to start, right? Jesus, the son can do nothing of his own accord, meaning Jesus, the son of God himself, God in the flesh can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Part of the great uh, discussion of the Trinity um, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is that there was unbroken relationship and unbroken fellowship, except at the point of the cross where Jesus was taking the sin of the world and of humanity on himself to die for the world that he might, in fact, save the world. There was unbroken fellowship and relationship with Jesus and his Father and um, with the Holy Spirit, and it was giving us an example of that which we might have restored to us as was represented in the Garden of Eden and um, will ultimately be represented represented in our salvation. But he says, listen, I have a dependency, even in my earthly ministry on the Father, that I want to exemplify for you. That when you live, you might have this same type of dependency. You might have this same type of relationship. You might have this same type of trust. He says, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, and this is a very important point, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So, Especially in this generation, it's not good enough that people believe in God, right? It's not good enough that people just call themselves spiritual. He's saying, it's really about the honor of my son. If you are claiming to honor God, you've got to honor God through his son, Jesus Christ. You've got to honor his son if you're going to honor the father. And so he says this, continuing, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, meaning John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive from man <clears throat> is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. 
His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one he has sent. And here's where we'll end. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You diligently search the scriptures because you think that by them you'll have eternal life, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. These scriptures testify about me. So what he's saying here very practically is that life is in the Son. Life is in the Son of God. And there is no replacing a relationship with Jesus in a dynamic fashion. In our culture today, we often uh, reduce our Christianity to something that's merely academic or something that's merely mental or something that's something that we are sort of postulates that we agree with. But the truth of the matter is, is that beyond this service today where you're getting information and hopefully some inspiration, we need to get to a place where when we live outside of this place, we're relating to Jesus as the vine. We're relating to him as the source of our life and as the source of our sustenance. We continually refer to him as the one who is like an outlet on a wall. And just as this light is burning me right now and I might pass out in the heat, <laughs> what we also see is that it's provided the light for the room because it's plugged into the outlet, which provides the electricity. In the same way, there is no life in God without being connected in a dynamic way to Jesus. This is why many of you have grown up in church settings and you've seen people who've ascribed to the Christian faith, but it seems like their faith was dry. It seemed like their faith was stagnant. It seemed like they didn't really believe the things that they said to believe. And it was often because of the fact that they didn't relate to Jesus in a dynamic manner, which in essence means remaining in the vine. And for the new hope that we've been talking about throughout these past several weeks, the only way to actually come into the life of God is to remain in relationship with him, meaning through prayer, through worship, through community, through all of the things that we lay out that are just the practical steps that the Bible gives us for making the cake that was otherwise life in Jesus. Now, there was a man named Andrew Murray. Um, some of you have heard of him. He was a pastor, he was a writer, and he was um, a missionary in uh, South Africa many years ago. He lived from 1828 to 1917, and he wrote one of uh, the great Christian works, which was called Abide in Christ, and trying to flesh out what it actually means to live in the vine and live in Jesus. How many of you have heard of Andrew Murray before? Okay, anybody? Okay, has anybody ever heard of the book before, Abide in the Vine? Okay, all right, so here's some of the things that he said about remaining in the vine. First of all, if we have a good start to the year and we've fasted and we've prayed and we've started to walk out our new faith in Christ, um, what we do is we've got to remain in that place. But how do we remain in it? First of all, he said this, a soul filled with large thoughts of the vine will be a strong branch. Even as we talked about in John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you're the branches. But a soul filled with large thoughts of the vine will be a strong branch and will abide confidently in him, meaning remain in him. Be much occupied with Jesus and believe much in him 
as the true vine, meaning that, number one, if we're going to remain in the vine, we have to have our thoughts set on him, right? And that what Joshua said whenever he told the people of God that you're going to, by the word of God, come into the promised land and come into all that I have given you as an inheritance. He said to reflect on my word, or rather another word for it is to meditate on my word. How often? Day and night. He says day and night so that you might be careful to do everything that's written in it. Then, and that was a qualifier, right? If you meditate on my word day and night, then you will be careful to do everything that's written in it. And then you will be able to take possession of the land that I promised you and have given you. So when we talk about a new hope, it first starts with, uh, starts rather with our thought life, right? Where are we setting our thoughts? It is easy to set our thoughts on things that really don't make much of a difference or frustrate us, right? Um, in our everyday experience, whether in the workplace or on social media or, you know, the things that we uh, expose ourselves to through entertainment, you know, and they don't amount to much, but he's saying, hey, let your thought life be large in Christ, right? Set your thoughts on Christ. Set your thoughts on him where he's seated at the right hand of God, and you yourselves, your lives are hidden with Christ in him as you wait for his return. Andrew Murray also said this about abiding in Christ. He said, it is only the thirst of an empty soul. It is only into, rather, the thirst of an empty soul that the streams of living waters flow. Ever thirsting is the secret of never thirsting. Ever thirsting is the secret to never thirsting. And what he's referencing here is obviously Jesus who said, I'm the bread of life and if you feed on me, you'll never be hungry again, right? But he also says, I'm the living water and he who believes in me will never thirst again. Talking about the thirst that we have for daily needs, daily relational needs, daily necessities in our soul even. He says, if you believe in me and you trust in me and my th your thoughts are large towards me, you'll never thirst again. Why? Because I'll satisfy the very needs that I've given you in creation you in your soul. But to be ever, um, never thirsting, Andrew Murray points out that you have to be ever thirsting, right? You have to be ever thirsting for him, which in fact is a choice. How do we know this? Because Jesus, even in the Sermon on the Mount, actually says, blessed are those who hunger, not thirst, but hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. That means that we can choose to hunger for the right things, right? We can choose to hunger for the things of God. And as we choose to first set our minds on him and then hunger for the things of God, he said he'll fill us with his righteousness. And that's good news in him. He gives us practical steps to do that. But Andrew Murray went on um, further to uh, say this. He said, I pray still more earnestly that he, meaning Jesus, would, by whatever means, make the multitude of his dear children who are still living divided lives, who are still living divided lives. And is that not the challenge and the temptation of all of our faith? And what he's not saying is that a divided life is doing anything besides going to church. A divided life is really doing anything outside of even a church setting without it being submitted or committed to him. Meaning that everything that you do, whether in word or deed, according to Colossians, Paul writing by the Holy Spirit should be done in the name of the Lord, 
right? So when you're in your workplace, when you're in your academic setting, when you're in your family setting, all of these things are done in the name of the Lord. And this is, in essence, abiding in him. You're thinking about, you're actually praying through, how can this honor him? How can this be utilized for him and his glory? How can this actually be utilized to advance his purposes and his kingdom in the earth? That's what it means to do everything in the name of the Lord. It's not just attaching his name to whatever you choose to do. It's actually saying, God, I'm submitted to you. How is this an offering to you? And so the divided life is not having responsibility outside of a church setting. It's actually having a heart that disconnects from him when you find yourself there. And so he's saying, I pray still more earnestly that Jesus would, by whatever means, make the multitude of his dear children who are still living divided lives to see how he claims them wholly for himself and how the wholehearted surrender to abide in him alone brings the joy and speakable and full of glory. That abiding in him alone brings the joy unspeakable and full of glory, right? And this is what the psalmist had already told us. He said that in his presence, there is fullness of joy and life evermore, right? Can you tell practically and tangibly the difference between the difference between times that you're fully committed in the word of God, prayerful, in worship, in fellowship with his people, doing the things that the Bible says to do, and times when you're not? Can you not tell the tangible difference? The tangible difference in your health, the tangible difference in your anxiety levels, the tangible difference in your soul and frustration, the tangible difference in your discouragements or encouragements that come from his promises. All of these things are practical, and he's saying, hey, listen, abide in me, and there's where you'll know the fullness of joy. And he says, oh, let each of us who has begun to taste the sweetness of this life yield himself wholly to be a witness to the grace and power of our Lord to keep us united with himself and seek by word and walk to win others to follow him fully. You know, I love that. It is only in such fruit bearing that our own abiding can be maintained. So Jesus said, hey, listen, freely you've received from me. And part of how you remain in me is that you freely give it away too. You get some of the water in, and then you let it flow out, right? That's how we avoid stagnation, is it not? I lived um, behind a, or in front of a creek growing up in uh, Charleston for part of my life in Charleston, South Carolina. And the thing about a creek is that it's, it's cute. It's like, you know, you hear the crickets and everything, all the wildlife at night, but it also is stagnant and stinks, right? And the reason why is because the water's not flowing, and if you've ever been in a place before where you felt like you have a stagnation in your faith or a stagnation in your soul, it's partly because of the fact that the water that's coming in might just be settling there. And it's not actually getting out to actually flow and team with life as God intends it to. And so this is why in Philemon, he actually gave this exhortation, Philemon 6. I'm not going to have it on the screen, but you could write it down. He said, I pray that you might be active in sharing your faith so that you might know, not others, but just they're going to benefit from it as well, but that you might know every good thing that you have in Christ Jesus. When you begin to talk about it, when you begin to tell it, when you begin to share it, all of a sudden lights come on for you. Has anybody ever experienced that before? Whether with family members, coworkers, or friends. He's saying, listen, part of the way that you remain in him is you remain in his flow. Jesus said that wherever I am, there also my servant will be. 
And so Jesus is continually, even by the Holy Spirit today, on the move. He's continually doing the works of his Father, and he's doing them through his people. And part of the reason that we feel disconnected from his life is because we're disconnected from following him and what he's doing. Not just who he is, but what he's doing. Does that make sense? This is what Andrew Murray is speaking about. But finally, Andrew Murray gave this last exhortation in the book, and he said, in, in Abiding in Christ, he said, In conclusion, I ask to be permitted to give one more word of advice to my reader. It is this. It needs, meaning the reader, needs time. Time italicized. It needs time to grow into Jesus the vine. There is no substitute for that. There is no substitute for time spent with the one that you love right? Can every married person say amen to that? It doesn't matter what gifts you give. It doesn't matter what service you perform. If you don't have quality time spent with the one that you love, then inevitably you'll become disconnected in heart and mind, body and sometimes soul, right? He said it needs time to grow into Jesus the vine. Do not expect to abide in him unless you will give him that time. It is not enough to read God's word, or meditations as here offered, and when we think we have hold of the thoughts and have asked God for his blessing to go out in the, ho- um, in the hope that the blessing will abide. No, it needs day-by-day day time with Jesus and with God. We all know the need of time for our meals each day. Every workman claims his hour for dinner. The hurried eating of so much food is not enough. If we are to live through Jesus... We must feed on him. He references John 6, 57. Given us in his life. Therefore, my brother, who would learn to abide in Jesus, take time each day, ere you read, and while you read, and after you read, to put yourself into living contact with the living Jesus. To yield yourself distinctly to his blessed influence so will you give him the opportunity of taking hold of you, of drawing you up and keeping you safe in his almighty life. He's saying it's not enough just to even read and check the box, right? It's not enough just to do your daily devotions, as we call it. And many of you have taken on the great venture of even something like reading through the Bible in a year, right? That's great, fantastic, a great aspiration, But when you do so, he says, don't be like the one is what James says, who looks at something and looks at himself in the mirror and then immediately goes away and forgets what he looks like. You have to have an ongoing meditation, an ongoing abiding, an ongoing connection with him, almost as if when you go out into the world, you're clinging to him for dear life. Because ultimately, if we're going to live in the life of God, we need to do such a thing. Now, if that's what it means to abide in God and actually have a dynamic, not a static, but a dynamic relationship with him, the question is, what is it that actually keeps us from living in this manner? And the thing that keeps us from living in this manner are one of God's natural laws, which is actually the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy. Anybody remember their physics classes? 
Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, so we'll, re- we'll, okay, we'll reduce it here today. In the law of uh, uh, thermodynamics, thermodynamics, right? The first law is that matter can neither be created nor destroyed, right? A great apologetic. Please, I recommend the apologetics class to you, right? But the second is this. It's the law of entropy that God himself instated that everything in a reductive form goes from a state of order to disorder, that without the input of energy into a system, that it's going to naturally be reduced from a state of order to disorder. Now, you might find yourself, that might be nebulous to you, but you can actually relate to this when you think about your own clothing and your own laundry. Have you ever noticed that no matter how often you do laundry and how often you fold clothes, once you wear them again, the order that you created after the trip to the laundry has resulted in disorder again? or the, the way that you've cleaned your house, right? Anybody have any spring cleaning coming up? We're not there, okay? But it's sort of like when you clean your house, you think you've accomplished something, and you're like, woo! Haven't I done something special this Saturday, right? And then all of a sudden, you think that like, you want to invite people over again. Before that, you, didn't, you were like, listen, I, I'm going to have to meet you at the Starbucks, right? And sort of like, but then you clean your house, and then all of a sudden, there's order in your house, right? But then how about this? A week passes by. A week passes by. Only a week. And the great effort that you made to make your household spotless is gone. Is it not? And if it's not for the things that you leave about or the ways that you are rushing out to get to work, leaving clothing on the floor or beds unmade or things pulled off of hangers and hangers, you're tripping over them on the floor, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Then all of a sudden, if it's not that, it's just the dust. He says, from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And what is dust? It's nothing but dirt in our skin cells that are coming off of us continually that fill our house. Why? Because we're living. And it's a great example of entropy, right? It's sort of like without continual input into the system, whatever we create, it goes from a state of order to disorder. And so it is in the life of God that it does not matter the order that you had in pursuing him in a moment in time. If you do not remain connected to the vine, inevitably it goes to a state of disorder. That is a law of God. And he says you need to continue in him to actually remain in him and remain in the life that he's given you. Now, the question is, is that if we have failed in that, and I would submit to us that everyone has failed in not resisting entropy before. Has that, would anybody admit that? That life takes us away and carries us away. We get disconnected. We get frustrated. We get snappy. We get to be the unpleasant people that we always are talking about. Anybody, right? Have you, has anyone ever become exactly the person that they were talking about before in frustration? Yes, when you were disconnected from God? I have many a time. And the thing is, is this. He says in Ezekiel, there is good news for you as represented or foreshadowed in the gospel. And this is where he's addressing one of the great laws of God, the entropy that can take place if we're not remaining in our conscious effort to um, remain in Christ in our, um, our position in him. And he says this to the house of Israel, Ezekiel talking. Ezekiel 33, starting in verse 10. He says, And you, son of man, say to the house of Israel... Thus have you said, surely our transgressions, which is an important word, because there's something called sin, 
which is missing the mark and disobeying the commands of God and actually sometimes doing it inadvertently. Sometimes doing it, as we would say, by accident or in ignorance. I didn't know. A transgression is something different. A transgression is actually knowing what we ought to do and doing something different anyway. Or knowing what we shouldn't do and choosing to participate in that sin anyway. Transgression is what he's referring to here. And transgression is the thing that can often keep us bogged down from progressing in the things of God more than just inadvertent sin. Because we feel even more guilty. Because we knew better, right? We knew better, and how are we supposed to abide in Christ? How are we supposed to go before him without shame if we knew better and we still chose to do it anyway? This is what he's referring to. He said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we rot away because of them. The guilt is just like, ah, can't believe I did that. Anybody ever have mea culpas? Okay, mea culpa, mea culpa. All right. So it's sort of like, how did I do that? How did I go there? He said, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. And this is what you need to theologically get in your heart of hearts in his relationship to you. You need to see God the right way if you're going to relate to him the right way. You need to know his heart if you're going to trust him to be able to abide in him. And he says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Isn't that good news? I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. If you find yourself here today disconnected from God, meaning you've never submitted your heart or bowed your knee to him, put your trust in Jesus, and have found yourself a rebel, he says, listen, God's not trying to stand opposed to you. He's saying today, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. I don't enjoy judging people. I don't enjoy sending people to hell. This is what he's saying here. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him when he transgresses. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall by it when he turns from his wickedness. And the righteous shall not be able to live by his righteousness when he sins. What is he saying there? That just because I started off in a bad place doesn't mean I have to stay there. If I choose to do a 180 degree turn, repent of my sin, and go towards God, he says that I can be forgiven. I can be forgiven, and actually the things that were done in wickedness before won't be remembered. But at the same time, he's giving a strong exhortation to those who would begin to take God for granted once they started a walk with him. He's saying if you've started in righteousness, and then after that begin to turn and do wickedness, and begin to live a perpetual lifestyle of sin, the righteous things that you did before won't be remembered either, meaning you can't rest on your former glory. Isn't that what's going to happen eventually to all these Super Bowl cats? It's like they might say, listen, I played in the big game. Remember that time? And guess who's going to care? Nobody. 
Right? Nobody. How many people can even remember who was in the Super Bowl five years ago? Maybe if it was your team, but other than that, nobody. You got, I bet you're looking it up right now. Right? Nobody. And the thing is, is he's saying, don't rest on your laurels of yesterday. Remain in the vine. Don't expect that just because you said a sinner's prayer that it's all good and dandy now. I can live like I want to. I live like hell. It's party time now because I've been covered in the blood. It's like, let me tell you something. He says, listen, if you trust in that, none of the righteous things that you've done will be remembered either. But he reiterates. He says again, <clears throat> though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery and walks in the statutes of life. What this is referring to is a theological concept called restitution. Okay, it's not just enough that we say or go about our business and sin or transgress and say, oops, I'm sorry, whoops, sorry, and then keep doing the same thing. He's like, listen, you've got to do something to actually give back what you've stolen, right? You've got to actually, if you've offended someone or violated somebody, make amends, right? You actually go back and make up for what you've done. You don't actually just assume. And I'm only saying this because that's the culture we live in today. People just say, you know, they take no responsibility for the repercussions of their sin. It's like we sin and we think that if we just say sorry, then it's done with. But the gospel is Jesus had to pay a price, for our sin. And he did pay that price, but restitution is part of repentance. Restitution is part of doing what's right before him. And he said, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is right and just, if the wicked restores the pledge, gets back what he has taken by robbery and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall surely live. That's the good news of the gospel. He said, repent wherever you are, whether you're starting in this walk or you've been walking with him for a while and gone astray. He said, repent, believe the good news, and none of the wicked things that you've done before will be remembered. That's the good news. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so he separates us from our sins. He separates us from our sins. But this is the law of entropy clearly defined. If you're not actively remaining in the vine, we tend to go in one direction or another. It's either toward him or it's away from him. There is, like we like to say, no demilitarized zone. <laughs> there is no demilitarized zone. Jesus said, you're either gathering with me or you're scattering. There is no just chilling. Jesus said, come and remain in me. This is uh, obviously going to be seen when 
you hear reports tonight even about Tom Brady and at 40 years old how he's genetically an anomaly. But people think often about Tom Brady and like, man, he's just got good genes. It's like, no, when you actually hear about his regiment, has anybody read about his regiment? What he eats, what he sleeps like, you know what I mean? His workout routine, even the things that he wears to bed. Do you, do you, like he has special pajamas that he, that he wears to bed to actually increase his sleep REMs and all that good stuff. But he has intent on remaining at the top of his game. Should we not have that same type of ardent pursuit of Jesus, who is our life? But outside of that, last point, there was a man named Mephibosheth in the Old Testament. He, as I said before, was the son or of Jonathan, who was the son of Saul, the first king of Israel. So he's the grandson of the first king of Israel. And oftentimes we have to ask ourselves, what gives us the right to have a new hope in God? What gives us the right to remain him and or even respond to him if we're pushing against that law of entropy and we're actually coming back to a place where we're remaining in Christ through all of these different activities and hopes? What is it that will keep us there? Well, when you live, minister, and pray, here's the answer. When you live, minister, and pray, you need to understand that you do so already having the king's favor meaning that you don't have to work your way to God in any respect because God has worked his way toward you. You don't have to try to garner the favor of God whenever you're praying or stepping out in faith or trying to be a witness for Christ or trying to even live in the life that he's provided for you. That's what's called a works-based righteousness that the gospel has eradicated. He said, there is no working your way to God, but being and abiding in Christ means that we already have his favor. When you're stepping out and believing for miracles, you already have his favor. Why? It's not because of you, but it's because of the cross of Christ. You do not need to minister to gain that approval. The rights that you have are because the king, meaning God, is looking to honor his son, Jesus and those to whom those who belong to his son. This is what was referred to in John 5, right? Where he says, anybody who's honoring the son is honoring me. All who belong to him, based on the covenant he's established, receive this favor. This is what David and Jonathan foreshadowed. You can look at this later, but in 1 Samuel 20, 42. And is what that from which Mephibosheth, tongue twister, sorry, was able to benefit. It's the same with us today as we wait to enter glory and eat at the wedding banquet of our resurrected son, um, God, I'm sorry, our resurrected king, Jesus, who paid the price for our sins that we may have a seat at his table. Turn with me to the last place to 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is speaking about Mephibosheth. And though it seems to be a, an isolated example or an isolated picture of the grace of God, it is the very picture of the security we have in him as we live and minister out of the place of the favor he's already purchased for us. That he's already purchased for us in Jesus. It said this, And David, meaning King David, the second king of Israel, said, this is when he assumed the throne, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul, meaning the first king, that I might show him kindness? That I might show him kindness. You see, 
not for their sake, but for Jonathan's sake. Is there anyone, you think about King David assuming the throne and him having at his disposal all of the wealth and all of the power and all the military might of Israel at that time. And he says, listen, I'm looking throughout the land and I'm looking for someone whom I might show my favor to. I'm looking for somebody that I might show my kindness to for all the things that the king was responsible for. You would have thought he might have had better things to do, but he was looking all throughout the land for somebody to whom he might show his kindness. And not because they were so great, but because he had a covenant with their father. He had a covenant with this man named Jonathan, who was an honored son in the court until his death. And he was looking for this Son, and he says, Listen, I'm trying because I have a covenant with this guy, Jonathan, who passed away, who actually helped save my life. Who helped save my life when I was on the run from King Saul, and he was trying to kill me because he was threatened that I would take the throne. I made a covenant with this guy, Jonathan, and I said that for, for the rest of time, I'm going to show kindness to those who belong to you, Jonathan. I'm going to look for them and I'm going to show kindness to them and I'm going to show grace to them, not because of what they've done, but because of the covenant that you and I have, the agreement that you and I have. And there, the Bible goes on to say, now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. He, felt, he got crippled because when he was on the run as a baby, they dropped him and then he got injured. It's almost like what many of us try to relate to God, but we feel crippled in doing so, or there's injury in our soul, and we can't get past our injury to actually find ourselves abiding in Christ in our own strength. But the good news is, he says, even when you feel crippled, I'm coming and looking for you. He says, I'm coming and looking for you. The king said to him, where is he? Sounds like the Garden of Eden, does it not? In the midst of sin, he says, listen, where are you, Adam? God knew. But he came looking anyway. He wanted him to admit, listen, I can't do this without you. I'm lost without you. And that's a lot of times what we need to admit to God if we're going to be rescued by him. I am lost without you. I need your help to abide in you. I'm crippled. But the good news is he's coming looking. And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, didn't even answer him and said to him, all that belong to Saul and all to his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may eat, have bread to eat. 
But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. At my table. And some of you might think about this and think that in our context, it's like, well, you might not be so honored to get an invitation to the White House to eat with the president. Well, listen, it would still be an honor, okay? But to get an honor to eat with the king and to always eat at his table, that's no ordinary thing. And this is the gospel clearly defined in and of itself, that because Jesus, the son, was honored, because we have given our allegiance to him. He says, I'm not showing you kindness because of anything you've done. I'm showing you kindness because of what he's done. And because of my covenant with my son, I'm going to give you an inheritance and a new hope that cannot be denied. If you remain in me and you allow me to work in you as you remain in me, all the promises, not only of the gospel, but of the cross and all that comes along with it in this life that has to do with your career, that has to do with your relationships, that has to do with your finances, that has to do with everything that you put your hand to, which the covenant said he'll bless as you obey him. He said they are yes and amen to you in Christ Jesus. And that's the promise and that's the posture that we need to have whenever we relate to him. Our king honored because of our relationship with the son. So wherever you find yourself today, the good news is he's coming looking again. He's coming looking again and he says, hey, if you found yourself going astray, come back and abide in the son. If you've never submitted your heart to Jesus, he says for the first time, now is your time. Abide in the Son. Leave your works aside and cling to what he's done for you, not ever what you'll do for him. And then whatever you choose to do for him will be a great joy because it comes out of the overflow of abiding in the vine. Amen? All right, something to think about, something to chew on, but we're done. Worship team, let's go.